0: By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information.
1: Welcome to Moody's Talks, The Big Picture, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and perspectives for Moody's analysts around the globe on the key credit and economic issues in fixed income markets. I'm Jennifer Wong, and I'm your host for today. Our topic today is China's growth slowdown. The world economy has gotten off to a challenging start in 2022, and nowhere is the uncertainty more apparent than in China. Growth in the world's second largest economy picked up markedly in 2021, but it slowed significantly in the second half of the year. We, and others, forecast a continued slowdown in this year. The loss of economic momentum comes as China has imposed strict COVID-19 lockdowns in some regions and is undergoing a severe downturn in its all-important property sector. The growth outlook is further complicated by uncertainty as to how the country's common prosperity plan to reduce wealth gaps will be implemented. Meanwhile, Authorities are also pursuing a dual circulation economic strategy, which has a particular focus on building China's self-reliance and expanding domestic consumption. The economy also faces longer-term challenges from an aging population. To discuss what's next for China's economy and its impact on the rest of the world, I'm delighted to have two of Moody's top China watchers on today's show, both based in Singapore, Gene Fang of the Sovereign and Subsovereign Group, and Michael Taylor of the Credit Strategy and Research Team. Welcome, Gene.
2: Hi, Jennifer. Happy to be here.
1: And welcome, Michael.
2: Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for inviting us.
1: Thanks very much for joining. I'd like to start with a bit of an overview. We've seen economic growth in China rebound from the effects of the pandemic, with activity and exports recovering swiftly in 2020 and 2021. And the economy grew at around 8.1% last year. But growth slowed in the second half of the year. And we expect growth to moderate in 2022. Gene, if I could start with you, can you explain what's behind the slowdown in China's growth?
0: Sure, Jennifer. I mean, you correctly pointed out that growth did begin to moderate in the second half of 2021. And I think that was driven by a couple of factors. There was a slowdown in the overall property and real estate sector. There were power shortages, supply chain interruptions that contributed. And of course, there was the intermittent occurrence of COVID restrictions throughout the year, which had an overall effect of muting consumer demand. But I think if you pull back and look at this in the, in, uh, from a bigger picture perspective, the slower growth rate that we expect in 2022 is not necessarily that far off from what we would have expected in 2022 pre-COVID. And I think that we are looking at, in the long run, a declining working age population in China, productivity growth slowing, and a continued focus on deleveraging the economy. And all these factors are contributing to slower growth going forward.
1: Michael, if I could bring you in here, in terms of the recent slowdown, though, how much has government policy played a role?
2: It's played a pretty big role. And I think what we're seeing is the impact of government policy across a number of different dimensions. But obviously, the one that's attracted most attention in recent months has been the deleveraging in the real estate sector and the attempt to reduce leverage among property developers and that has obviously had a big impact the property market itself is a relatively small part of gdp but if you include all of the other elements in the downstream from property you get up to around 25 28 percent of gdp construction steel cement heavy machinery etc So it has a really big impact. So when the government decides that they're going to reduce leverage in the real estate market, it has big spillover effects to the rest of the economy. And we're seeing some of the impact of
1: that. Mm -hmm. But government has tried to tackle leverage before. What makes this time different?
2: What makes this time different is that I think the government has, first of all, concluded that the recovery post-pandemic was sufficiently strong that they had a bit of headroom to try to address some of these deep-seated structural issues. Secondly, it's not the first time, as you mentioned, that they've tried to address these issues of leverage. But I think they've now reached the point where it's now government policy to try to shift China's economic growth model onto a different path. And that's really very much the focus of government policy. What they're trying to do is to maintain stability while they do that. And that's really where the challenge comes, engaging in these big deleveraging campaigns, but at the same time, maintaining stability.
1: What about the government's COVID strategy, which doesn't seem to have changed? While others have shifted to learning to live with the virus, China has continued to pursue a zero tolerance COVID strategy. And we've had recent cases pop up in various parts of the country, which has prompted localized lockdowns. Jean, how is this policy affecting growth and is it sustainable?
0: Well, I think COVID and the government's response to the virus are some of the key downside risks that we see in terms of our growth forecast. As you've mentioned, what we've seen have been sort of localized incidents where infections will increase and then the government will respond by using very targeted, but rather strict restrictions on local movement and stepping up contact tracing. From a macro perspective, I think the effect that we would focus on is the degree to which that continually dampens consumer sentiment. And as a baseline expectation, we do think that as we go further on into the year, we'll see fewer and fewer incidents where movement restrictions are needed. And ideally, by the second half of the year we would see a rebound in consumer sentiment leading to a resurgence in consumer demand. But it's certainly possible that we will see continued rolling restrictions throughout the year, in which case we would assume consumption to be weaker in the second half of the year. But if that is the case, we do think that the government would probably offset some of that with greater infrastructure investment.
1: Perhaps we can turn to the property sector, which is facing a downturn. And and as we talked about property sector is a big part of the chinese economy and a weakening in that sector is going to weigh on growth and we've seen some stress in the property market with defaults by a number of chinese property developers in fact we have a negative outlook on the property sector and expect a contraction in property sales this year we can tie this slowdown as we talked about back to government policy but michael why is the government trying to force the property sector to deleverage
2: Well, it's basically trying to change the economic growth model. And if we go back to the global financial crisis and China's response to that, it was to rely quite heavily on infrastructure investment and also investment in property development. One of the consequences of that has been that we've seen leverage across the whole economy rise. A second consequence has been that households have tended to use housing as an asset rather than... A place to live in, and you know we hear government policy about uh, houses for living in, not for speculation. So I think there's a number of things going on here which the government is trying to address, but it's basically to try to de-risk the economy and trying to de-risk the reliance on property as a source of growth.
0: If I could add on to that, I think it's in a way ironic that as the government is trying to shift away from an investment-led growth model and property investment, the impact on growth may actually be offset by an increase in government led infrastructure investment. As, you know, growth begins to flag, the government's main tool for supporting growth will be infrastructure investment. And as Michael pointed out earlier, the effect that we want to be focused on from a credit perspective is how that can lead to additional increases in leverage. Now we think The government does have some capacity to fund additional infrastructure investment from their balance sheet. But nevertheless, we expect RLG bonds, special purpose bonds, and local government finance vehicle bond financing to actually increase in tandem with any increase in infrastructure-led investment.
1: So RLGs are regional local governments, and that's a space, Gene, that you and I have been looking at. And the property sector slowdown will have implications for their finances because they depend on land sales for a large share of their revenues. And that revenue source has been quite volatile, but quite significant and has been slowing recently. What does the slowdown in the property sector mean for RLG finances?
0: You're right, Jennifer. Land sales have been an increasingly large part of total government revenues they're contributing now around 30% of total revenues for regional and local governments across the country. But I think that the impact from a slowdown in land sales will really bring out the regional divergences when we think about it from a credit perspective. On the one hand, you do have prosperous regions where higher valuations are driving up higher volumes of land sale revenues. And so you may see an impact around valuations, but less of a overall credit impact. Whereas on the other hand, there are developing regions that are actually more dependent on land sale volumes and are, in many cases, more directly indebted to start with. And we would expect those regions to be particularly hard hit by a drop in land sales revenue.
1: But we still say that the government has tools to respond and prevent any hard landing in the property sector and in fact we also say that we don't expect this to result in any financial crisis michael can you elaborate on this Uh, why is that our expectation and what tools does government have
2: well the government has a lot of tools in china and i think that's one of the big differentiating factors between china and many other economies first of all the government has control over quite a number of balance sheets jean's just been talking about the regional local governments But also, you you need to think in terms of state-owned enterprises, Uh, central government-owned state-owned enterprises, the large state-owned banks, uh, the asset management companies. There are a number of different balance sheets that the government can use to try to stabilize things, and it has done in the past, and we expect it to continue to do that. So the government has quite a lot of policy tools available to it. The risk is perhaps more concentrated in certain smaller banks, in some of the regional banks, which are more exposed to property developers. But that's something which, in our view, doesn't constitute a systemic risk.
1: So, Michael, what does China's slowdown mean for the rest of the world?
2: Since the global financial crisis, China has been the largest contributor to global growth for quite a number of years now. I've seen some estimates that it's around one-third of global growth since 2009 has been the result of growth in China. So if China slows down, that will inevitably have some impact on growth in the rest of the world because Chinese demand, especially for raw materials, for commodities, has been very strong over the last decade or so. And if we see that growth slowing down, that will have an effect.
1: And Jean, if we could focus on Asia a bit. What does slowing growth in China mean for other countries in Asia?
0: Well, I think the presence of China's economy and the impact that it can have on its neighbors that Michael just mentioned is just magnified when you think about the APAC region. But nevertheless, you know, when you look at our forecasts for the region for 2022, even incorporating the lower levels of growth in China, we are seeing a pretty broad recovery in the APAC region, and many growth rates will be recovering towards or approaching their pre-pandemic levels in this year and next year, partly reflecting maybe the rebound that we saw in China during 2021 being experienced in some other economies in the region. So despite the slowdown or the lower growth rates we see in China this year, we do expect growth in Asia to be relatively robust.
2: And just to add to that, we're seeing closer integration of China into the regional economy, and that it is a source of final demand, increasingly, for many economies in the region. So supply chains, for example, are becoming increasingly configured around final demand from China. And so clearly, that are large ramifications for the rest of Asia, in terms of that kind of degree of economic integration. And then, of course, we've had trade agreements, like the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which again further cements China's role in the regional economy.
1: And thinking about longer-term implications, so we've talked about how China's tried to pursue multiple policy goals, be it deleveraging, addressing income inequality, reshaping the economic growth drivers. And the focus previously was on growth and now it seems to be on sustainable growth. Michael, But can I ask you, what are China's growth prospects over the longer term? We've talked previously about the common prosperity agenda, dual circulation. Will that make growth more sustainable?
2: Well, it certainly moves growth away from the reliance on investment, which I think you know, the Chinese authorities recognize is not a, a long-term sustainable policy. The focus on dual circulation indicates an intention to develop the consumer market within China. As Jean mentioned at the beginning, that is a major goal of government policy. We've seen fairly limited moves towards building up domestic consumption so far. But that certainly has huge potential in terms of the domestic market. And then also, I think we would see, as far as common prosperity is concerned, again, a positive development in that broader distribution of the proceeds of growth, which is really the aim of the policy, again will support domestic consumption. So hopefully domestic consumption will strengthen as investment is reduced as a source of growth.
1: But what are the risks to this agenda? What are some of the scenarios that we could see?
2: One is that consumption doesn't pick up as we anticipate. And there isn't really the evidence yet that we're seeing a strong pick-up in terms of domestic consumption. And one of the other factors that we were talking about earlier in terms of the COVID response, that has continued to have a dampening effect in terms of domestic consumption. So that's one area where I think we, we need to focus. The other one is in terms of the potential for some kind of financial distress, especially among the smaller banks, the regional banks, We think the government has the policy tools to deal with that, to prevent it from becoming a systemic problem. But certainly, there may be a need to clean up the balance sheets of some of those institutions.
0: Another consideration I'd probably add to that would be the risk of regulatory overstep. I mean, I think part of common prosperity does include a broad slate of regulations designed to focus on monopolies, designed to focus on data security. And while those all may be individually very laudable goals, the combined effect of new regulation may have the unintended consequence of dampening entrepreneurial innovation and putting a further dampening on the private sector. And that could further slow down productivity growth going forward.
2: And I think that risk is particularly great if it results in greater policy uncertainty, if the private sector is less clear about the rules of the game, and if you know there is a sense that things are changing in a way that is less predictable. If that happens, then certainly there could be some impact in terms of productivity and in terms of private sector.
1: A lot to think about. So thinking about sustainable growth more broadly, You know, Rapid growth has come at a cost to the environment, and sustainable growth would need to take into account the environmental impact and also China's commitment to achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2060. Gene, how will the country's carbon transition plans affect its growth?
0: Well, achieving China's net zero targets is going to be very challenging, not just for China, for other countries as well. And from our perspective, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts provinces' As you may know, the provinces have been given targets for contributions from renewable energy production, and some provinces are just better endowed with hydro resources, for example, that would help them achieve those targets better. On the other hand, other provinces, particularly ones that are heavily industrialized, rely quite heavily on carbon-emitting energy production sources. Some of these are wealthier than others, tend to have more vibrant economies, but others do have very large sort of heavy industry legacy sectors, which need to be overhauled at the same time that the provinces are trying to reach net zero commitments. Achieving all those targets at once will be very challenging indeed.
2: The common theme we've been discussing throughout this podcast, I think, is the policy trade-offs that China faces at the moment, whether you know it's deleveraging versus growth, whether it's the shift away from investment-led growth towards domestic consumption, there are policy trade-offs involved in all of those. And the net zero commitment is yet another example of where there's a policy trade-off. We've seen already the impact of that at the end of last year, when the attempts to reduce reliance on highly polluting fossil fuels, particularly coal, resulted in disruption In terms of industrial production because the electricity supply was not adequate without coal. So there are some pretty fundamental trade-offs there. The long-term goal is a more sustainable economic model, and we think that China will get there. But there are certainly some major challenges in terms of just that transition.
1: We've explored a lot of different areas today, and as a final thought, taking all of this in and everything that we've talked about today, what aspect of China's economy will you be watching most closely over the next year? Jean, if I could start with you.
0: Sure, Jennifer. I mean, I think my focus is going to be on the regional disparities that we see within the country, and in particular, whether or not provinces that are less developed to begin with tend to have a more challenging time adjusting to slower overall national growth. And in that environment, we would be very cautious and wary about flare-ups or episodes in which credit pressures increase considerably for specific entities, insofar as those can be contained and managed on an isolated basis, systemic stability will be maintained, but the risk is that those flare-ups lead to broader systemic issues.
1: We've been talking a lot about widening regional disparities for some time now and these disparities are really revealing themselves and the differences between the different regions and provinces. Michael, what will you be watching?
2: Two things. I mean first one is staying on the regional theme. As I mentioned earlier The exposure of some of the smaller regional banks to the property sectors or property developers, I think that's something that needs close watching. It's not a systemic risk in the sense that it could cause a major financial instability, but the cleanup costs could be significant, and and that's something I think that's worth keeping an eye on. The other one is in terms of domestic consumption. Does it pick up as we expect it to in the second half of the year? Does the Chinese consumer find that as a result of these new policies like dual circulation, common prosperity, there is an incentive to go out and spend and to replace investment as the main driver of growth. I think that's something that we'll be a lot clearer about in 12 months' time.
1: That wraps it up for this episode of Moody's Talk's The Big Picture. If you haven't already, please follow our show on your favourite podcast platform. There... You can also sample some of our other Moody's Talks podcast series. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Wong, and thanks for listening.